Well, what is up, Point Podcast listeners? Man, so excited that you are joining with us today. Uh, man, listen to this podcast. Now, I do feel like I need to go ahead and just uh, go ahead and say that no, Brad and Steve are not with me today. This is the voice of yours truly, your youth pastor, uh, Justin Kinley. They're not with me today, uh, although we are going to be recording another podcast soon. Uh, man, I appreciate all y'all's feedback on that. It's been so much fun. Uh, just to talk. It gives us something good to do together that we have enjoyed doing and talking to one another. And it's uh, it's been fun. So we're going to record another one of those soon. Uh, but this is um, a podcast that I just kind of felt kind of led to do, I guess, thought it would be a good idea to do to kind of cover a difficult thing that we've kind of encountered as we've been preaching through the book of Joshua. And we've mentioned this a couple of times, uh, but it, as we've been walking through Wednesday nights, we've mentioned this as we've come up to these different passages. But I I thought it'd be a great resource uh, for you guys just to be able to listen to maybe a deeper look into it, um, to hear more of, uh, let's call it in-depth analysis of it, I guess you can say. And that's one of the harder questions that's in the book of Joshua. And that question is this. How do we justify all of the killing in Joshua? <laughs> right? Um, man, there is a lot of uh putting everything to death, everyone to death, men and women to death. Uh, it's in the book of Joshua, right? And so I thought it would be good. We talked about this way back in Joshua 2. Uh, we mentioned it a little bit in Joshua 6 and 8, but I just thought it'd be good to have a resource where it's specifically dedicated to talking about and discussing that question. And so uh that's kind of the question we're gonna be answering today. Day, is why all the killing in Joshua, or maybe uh, a better way to answer or ask that question is, how do we reconcile all the killing with Joshua? Uh, or all the killing in Joshua. You know, if we believe God is a good God, a loving God, a merciful God, how do we, um, how do we justify that? How do we reconcile the killing that we see with God's goodness? And so that's what we're talking about today. Um, so I think first of all, it'd be good to just maybe back up a little bit and just make this kind of blanket statement that I think it's okay for, it's an okay thing for us to understand that when we come to the Bible, uh, there are passages and there are things that are harder to understand than others, right? I remember when we were preaching, preaching uh, through First Peter a couple of years ago that many of you in our youth ministry today, uh, you weren't even around for, right? But it was a, we were preaching through First Peter and there's a passage in First Peter 3.19 that talks about when Jesus died, he went to preach to the spirits in prison, right? Um, and so it kind of gives us a glimpse into that intermediate phase of, okay, what happened between Jesus's death and his resurrection, right? Um, and I'll never forget, I read a passage that night I read an excerpt from an old church history guy named Martin Luther, right? Incredibly important uh, church history reformer. Um, and he writes that basically he says, uh, this is one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. And he says, I still don't know what the uh, what the author Peter is trying to say. <laughs> and so it's just kind of funny. Um, it's kind of funny to consider that and process that and, uh, and think through uh, that there's a ton of passages in the Bible that are difficult. There's passages that are hard to understand. I mean, you get to Romans nine and it's this crazy passage on the sovereignty of God and all these different things. So there are plenty of passages in the scriptures that are weighty when we come to it. And Joshua is none other. I mean, man, it's been so encouraging to talk about what God has been doing, what God has been actively involved in, in the book of Joshua. It's been incredible. But if you've been reading it at all, 
If you've been paying attention with us, there is something that's impossible to ignore, and that is that there is a lot of killing in it. I'm going to think about Joshua 6.24. It says they devoted, this is talking about Jericho, they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Uh, Joshua 8.24-25, this is after Ai. It says, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they had pursued them, and all of them, all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, the people of Ai. Uh, Joshua 10, man, there is a ton of verses about killing in Joshua chapter 10. Just a few of them. Uh, Joshua 10, verse 30. And the Lord gave it also, this is Libna, and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword. Every person in it, he left none remaining. Joshua 10, 32. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. He captured on it the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. Joshua 10, 33. Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and the people until he left none remaining. And if you read Joshua 10, 35, 37, 39, 40, and then in chapter 11, verse 8, and chapter 11, verse 11, all of these different passages, um, it's not just one person dying. I mean, it is a lot of person that bought a people that are being put to death at the edge of the sword. Um, and so there's a lot of killing in Joshua. There is. And this has been a question, um, man, that really, you know, has been used in um, a pretty negative way. I mean, if you think about in history, the crusades that happened, the Christian crusades, Joshua was a major thing used to justify that, to just going into land and killing people, right? So wiping people out who were your adversaries. Um, it's been used to justify terrible things. I, I've heard quite a few people when they talk about, uh, you know, sadly people who have left the faith and left the Christian faith. One of the reasons people will often cite is, man, they couldn't justify the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. Now we know that, that that's just a fallacy in and of itself and that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God of the Old Testament is not separate from the God of the New. He's, he's the same God throughout all of time and generation and space. But a question they would often look at is, man, how do we look at places in Joshua and see where God is ordering the killing of people seemingly, and now notice, I'm, I'm going to, I wish you could see me just air quote that word, seemingly innocent people. How can God command the killing of these people and yet still be good and just and loving in, in everything that we see in Jesus? And so we're going to answer that question a little bit today. How do we justify it? And I, I think there's three Three um, really reasons we can look at that help us a lot to answer this question. And we're not going to look at this from a philosophical level. We're going to look at this um, from verses that are in Joshua. Okay, so verses that are in Joshua that help us understand this question. So first, number one, Joshua 8.33. Joshua 8.33. So just to remind us where we're at at this point, they conquered Jericho. They put everyone to death as we read about. And then if you remember in Joshua 7, they go to Ai, but they are unsuccessful in taking Ai, right? And this is because of a man named Achan and Achan's sin, right? So God judges his people. They're not victorious in battle. They actually suffer a temporary defeat. And yet after they deal with sin, um, they, they kill Achan, right? We might come back to that in a second. They, they judge sin. They 
kill Achan and his family and they, they make themselves right before God. They repent. And then in Joshua eight, they conquer Ai and they capture Ai. And here, this verse eight thirty three is in this section of scripture where Israel, right after they conquer Ai, there's a return to the covenant. Right? There's a return to God's word where they're looking back and they say, okay, we were successful when we obeyed God. We were disobedient when we, when we, were, we were unsuccessful when we disobeyed God. So now we're going to just kind of, Joshua's leading the people out in this way. We're going to make this decision together that we are coming with one another and we are saying from here on out to the best of our ability, by God's grace, we're going to obey his word. So that's the context. Now listen to Joshua 8.33. It says, in all of Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers and their judges stood on the opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So notice what it just said there. Again, this is a ceremony of sorts where they're renewing the covenant and notice what the word says. It says at this moment, all of Israel sojourner as well as native born. You're saying, Justin, what does that mean? That means the native born were people who were true descendants of Abraham. These were true Israelites, people who by blood, you run a DNA test, DNA test, there are Israelites. It says they were there, but it also says that sojourners were there. That means people that were not Israelites, right? So you say, Justin, what could this mean? Well, uh, we do remember when the people left Egypt, remember the Bible says in Exodus that a mixed multitude went out with the people of Israel, right? So we know that there were actually Egyptians that left with Israel. That's crazy. People of other ethnicities left with Israel. That's nuts. We know from Joshua chapter two, we'll get there in a second in Joshua six, that Rahab was saved. Rahab was not an Israelite. So we know she was with the Israelites at this time. Um, but maybe it's other people as well. There are people in this covenant community right here that were not of Israelite native descent. A DNA test would say that they were a Gentile. They were not a Jew. And yet here they were with God. They, they were with the people of God standing before them. Okay. How cool is that? So apparently there are people here with Israel. Now you might be thinking, well, Joshua chapter six and Joshua chapter eight, I thought God wiped everybody out. So there's a few questions, right? Maybe, um, people of other cities are joining them, right? We don't know, like other people or families are coming and saying, man, we're hearing about what God has done and we're joining with you. Um, maybe that there are, uh, people, uh, maybe, maybe it's hyperbolic language of, okay, we wiped everybody out, but maybe they did. I, I don't know. There's a, there's just some questions here that we have to answer and recognize, okay, there are people joining with Israel that are not native people. So it's not the wiping out of everybody because there wouldn't be any sojourners there, right? If they were really wiping out everybody, then sojourners would be destroyed and it would just be native speaking people. But apparently there is a door open for people to enter into the covenant community of Israel. So that's what Joshua 8, 33 uh, kind of lends us to see. So we can see here that, okay, there was people other than Israelites that were becoming a part of the family. Th think about uh, the second reason. Number two, Joshua 8, 33 is the first reason. Number two, um, what about the Gibeonites in chapter nine? You, you remember what we read there when the Gibeonites come and they are supposed to be people in line for destruction, but the Gibeonites trick their way in. Remember, they act like foreigners. They act like people um, who were not really from uh, the promised land. They, they come in and they trick 
trick Israel and Joshua makes this covenant with them. And remember, it's uh, it, it's not the best thing. Uh, Joshua was frustrated. They made this covenant, all these things. But if we remember in the very next chapter in Joshua 10, when these other kings come together to fight against Gibeon, Joshua and Israel come to defend them. So these are Gibeonites, people who really were standing in the direct path of God's destruction, right? Uh, of God's wrath against the promised land. And yet they, by faith, in a way that they don't realize, but by faith, they trick their way into the family of God. And Gibeon is preserved from destruction. Gibeon does not die. And we see them even as far, if you remember this from that night, even later, years and years down the road in Israelite history, when Israel is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Gibeonites are there with them. And so uh, again, it's just another example that there are people who are avoiding this path of destruction because apparently they are coming in by faith. But I think the best reason the best reason. The first reason is Joshua 8.33. Second reason we can justify it and we reconcile it a little bit is Joshua chapter 9. The third reason, I think this is the best reason, is Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2. Um, so if you remember the story of Rahab, Joshua sends in spies, right, to go talk uh, or to go spy out the land of Jericho, the first city that the people of God are going to take. And I want to just re- read us. Remember Rahab the prostitute, she's a Gentile woman. She hides these spies, if you remember that, right? She hides these spies from the king of Jericho. And and she gives the reason in Joshua chapter two, verses nine through 11, um, as to why she hid, hid them. And I think this answer goes such a long way for us being able to understand, okay, this is why the people of the promised land were wiped out. So listen to what Rahab says in Joshua two, verse nine. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the fear of you has fallen upon all of us. Notice that, all of us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard of how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What an incredible statement. So I think we need to remind ourselves a little bit, okay? The people of Egypt came out of Israel, and we know that that original generation did not enter into the promised land because of their lack of unbelief. God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years, okay? So that means that when the people get to Jericho, when these spies are sent in, we are at least at the bare minimum 40 plus years removed from Israel leaving Egypt. You say, Justin, why does that matter? Because I think it's safe to say that Rahab was probably not 40 years old, right? Uh, considering her occupation, a prostitute, she might have been, um, but but there there probably was, she, she probably wasn't 40 years old. I think we can safely assume that. And even if she wasn't, this point still stands, but I think that's a safe assumption to make. Here's what's wild though. This prostitute named Rahab, who is not an Israelite, she's a citizen of Jericho, she's a Gentile woman, she knew all about Israel leaving Egypt, she knew all about the, the the Red Sea being dried up. She knew all about Sihon and Og, who Moses had killed. And I think it is completely a, a completely safe assumption to say, if Rahab knew it, 
than other people in Jericho knew it. And certainly, certainly, certainly the king of Jericho knew who God was and knew what God was doing for his people. And she even, this is insane to me, Rahab even admits in verse 10, um, or excuse me, verse nine, that she knows that the land is theirs, right? And so if Rahab the prostitute knew it, don't you think the king of Jericho knew it? I would say this, if Jericho knew this about God and God's people, don't you think Ai knew it? Don't you think Jerusalem knew it? Don't you think Hebron knew it? Don't you think other places, Lachish and Libna and all those other cities, don't you think they knew it? I think they absolutely would have. And even if they didn't know about Egypt, which they probably would have, and that's safe to assume that they did, then they definitely would have known about Jericho and they definitely would have known about Ai. And we know this because in Joshua chapter 10, you have kings joining together to fight against the people of God because they hear that Joshua made a covenant with Gibeon, right? So here's why I say all that. Two things. One, the wages of sin has always been death. The wages of sin, the wages of rebellion against God has always been death. And so here's what we need to understand. I think a lot of times the problems that people have when they come to Joshua is they sit there and think, okay, how could God seemingly wipe out all these desolate, all these innocent people? It's people that weren't in Egypt, these people that didn't receive the law. How could God wipe out these innocent people? But what Rahab's story keys us in on is these people, and I want you to hear me, were not innocent. They very likely knew who God was. At the very least, they could see that these people served a God who was fighting for them. And these cities under the direction of their kings and under the direction of the men in these cities standing up and fighting against Israel, they were rebelling against God and the wages of sin has always been death. Now, here's the reality. If you have an issue with that, right, then you don't just have an issue with Joshua anymore. You have an issue with the entire New Testament. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the wages of sin has always been death. So so if you're reading this and maybe you've had a, or listening to this and you've had a really big issue with, okay, how is there all the killing in Joshua? And then you hear this, that the wages of sin has always been death and that still bothers you. Then what we need to talk about is we need to have a discussion just on the gospel in general, because if you have an issue with that, then really it's not so much an issue with just Joshua. It's an issue with what the scriptures teaches in regard to sin, right? But I think for us who who can come together and say, okay, yeah, it makes perfect sense that the wages of sin is death. That makes perfect sense. The wages of sin has always been death. Then we can read Joshua. And I'm so thankful. And I don't think it's an accident at all that the Holy Spirit inspired Joshua to write Rahab's story when he did right out of the gate in Joshua chapter two, because it lets us know for every city that's standing against God and against the people of God in opposition to God, they knew good and well what they were doing. They were standing in rebellion against God and the wages of sin, the wages of rebellion against God has always been death. And so I know, um, let's just be honest. It's still hard. Okay. Like I'm not sitting there saying that like, oh, we should just read that joyfully that men and women and are dying. No, no, no. It's, it should make us, uh, we should, we should feel that a little bit. We should feel the weight of that there. There still is a lot of death in Joshua and I'm not saying we should ignore it. I mean, gosh, I started this podcast by reading all these things. It is there, but, but I think it should do, do something for us where we realize, man, okay, God is serious about sin. 
He always has been. This is not just a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea. God has always been serious about sin. And here's another great news is that God is always for his people, right? God is always serious about sin and God is always for his people. He's going to drive out sin. He's going to drive out people that stand in opposition to his people. God is always against sin and God is always for his people. And then the amazing news on top of all that is that Rahab and apparently in Joshua 8, other sojourners and Gibeonites, when they come to the family by faith, they're welcomed into God's family. And as we talked about from Joshua 6, they are saved from God's wrath and into God's family. So I hope that that helps a little bit. I hope that reconciles it a little bit in our minds saying, okay, there is a lot of killing, but let's make sure we understand these are not just merely innocent people. They're people standing in rebellion against God and the wages of sin has always been death. Now, now to throw a wrench in all of this. Um, so if you don't want your brain to hurt, go ahead and hit stop. And, and thanks for listening. See you in a couple weeks for Brad and Steve. Um, but to throw a wrench in all this, there is a verse. And I just, cause, cause I, I want to do the passage justice. I want to talk about Joshua justly. I don't want to just, um, use verses to help make my argument and all these things. Um, but Joshua eleven twenty kind of throws a wrench in this and it's difficult to process. Okay. Joshua eleven twenty says this for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So immediately, I know, I'm sorry if I'm messing with you here. We have to hold this tension, right? That I think on one hand, there's this amazing picture of God's grace in Joshua 2. There's an amazing picture of God's grace in Joshua 8. There's an amazing picture of God's grace in Joshua 9. But there also is this this recognition in Joshua 11 that Joshua in writing this, he's saying that the Lord hardened the people's hearts so they would come against Israel in battle. Now, the hard part of this, um, and and I'm not trying to to make this passage say something that it's not. I'm just reading it honestly, right? Um, We don't know when the Lord hardened their hearts, right? Did he harden their hearts from the beginning of time? Like, were these people just, here comes that fancy theological word, were these people just predestined to rebel against God? We we don't know. Um, Did he harden their hearts after these nations exhibited a sign of rebellion? Right. So, so imagine this. It's like, you know, these kings and these kingdoms decide, like, oh man, we are going to stand in rebellion against God. And God just said, okay, they've already made that decision. I'm just going to harden their hearts so they come against the people of God and they'll be wiped out from the land. We, we really don't know, but it obviously does throw a wrench in this discussion because it makes us ask the question, did God just determine that these nations and these people were going to rebel and therefore they were going to die? Did they ever have a chance? at salvation at all? It's a heavy question. Um, Here's what I know. I know if it is that way, that that God determined it, that God just from the beginning of time, he hardened their hearts. If it is that way, and I want you to hear me and listen to this, um, I want to be okay with it, right? Who, Who am I to question a holy God? Who am I to question a God who is above my ways, who is apart from me, who is so much greater and so much more loving than I can possibly imagine? His wrath is so perfected. His righteousness is so pure. Who am I to question a God's ways who is holy, who is different, who is set apart from me? So so if that is the reality that, that okay, th- these people were just destined to do that, then, then man, let's trust it. 
Let's trust it. Let, let, let's do it. I know that's hard. I know that's difficult, but let's trust it. But but the argument that I take is I think we can look at the totality of Scripture. I think we can look at the bigger picture of Joshua as we already did in Joshua 2, Joshua 6, Joshua 8, and Joshua 9. And man, we can rest that while we do see God's wrath in Joshua, that it is perfectly balanced with God's goodness and God's mercy. Not saying that his wrath, and this is an important distinction to make, God's wrath is never in conflict with his love. God's love is never opposed to his judgment. God's wrath and his love always are working in perfect harmony with one another. And that's a crazy thing to process, right? But but I think when we look at Joshua and we see the pictures of grace in chapter two and chapter six and chapter eight and chapter nine, but we also see his wrath in chapters 10 and 11 and six and eight, and we see that death is being poured out, we, we can rest to know that there was an avenue of mercy for those who came by faith. We see it with Rahab. We see it with Gibeon. We see it in Joshua chapter eight when the people, uh, when their sojourners standing amongst them. And we see it in Habakkuk. We see that the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for salvation to all men that we're justified by faith, right? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of work so that no one could boast. That even in Joshua chapter two, in the midst of God pouring out, his wrath against sin, there is an avenue for salvation that comes through faith. And so just a few things in closing. Um, One, let's recognize that this passage is hard to understand. Let's recognize that for our mere mortal finite minds, um, we can read this and and it's okay to be like, man, it's kind of intimidating how much killing it is there. Let's do it. Uh, Let's recognize it's hard. That's okay. Let's own up to it. Secondly, Let's rest in the fact that there are numerous pictures of God's mercy and God's grace in Joshua. We see it first and foremost with his people. We see it in Joshua 2 with Rahab. We see it in Joshua 6 with Rahab. Joshua 8 with the sojourners who are standing there. Joshua 9 with Gibeon. We see God's goodness and mercy and grace embedded throughout this. And so in response, we recognize it's hard. We rest in his grace and his mercy. And three, then we respond with a love and devotion that a God who is so good, the man, he creates his people. He wants them to live in a land and he wants nothing to hinder them from experiencing harmony and unity with him. So God is willing to drive out sin so that his people can experience the fullness of who he is and what he has for them. So, man, I hope that helps. Um, if you have questions about this, let's, let's talk about it. Um, it's a hard part in Joshua. And so I thought it would be helpful to record a 25-minute conversation here. Didn't know it was going to be that long. Um, but a little little segment just talking about how do we justify, how do we reconcile, how do we process through this killing that we find in this book. And I hope, I hope, I hope that this provided at least some peace, maybe some answers, or maybe sparked even more questions. So would love to talk with you about it. If you want to, uh, man, we're always here. I love you. Thank you for listening. And uh, man, I'm just thankful that we serve a God who loves us enough. He's willing to drive out sin so that we can experience the fullness of who he is and what he has for us.